Hi, I'm Neil from the RuneQuest Project and welcome to Tales of the Black Alynx, a podcast series where we talk to the authors of Johnstown Compendium Publications. For our third episode, we're talking to three of the authors of a series of publications that have recently undergone the remastering process. Tales of the Sun County Militia currently spans three volumes. So can I ask, who are you all and where are you? Hello, my name is Jonathan Webb, but you should be called John Webb, and I live in Peterborough in the UK. Uh, my name's Mark Baldwin, and I live in Melbourne, Australia. And I'm Nick Brook, and I'm from London in England. Fantastic. Well, thanks for all of you for joining me. Um, first question, maybe can I ask, what's your history with RPGs, and how did you first encounter RuneQuest or HeroQuest? Uh, my first encounter with role-playing was when my big brother bought back a monster manual from Advanced Dungeons and & Dragons, and it sat in the middle of the lounge, and I looked at it and was absolutely mesmerised by all the numbers all over it and the pictures. Um, and I started off with Dungeons and & Dragons, and then RuneQuest came out, and initially I thought it was a very quirky game, and me and my friends played it because we thought it was very funny that legs and arms could get cut off. And then one day I saw Griffin Mountain and I bought that and I expected to, for it to be clear who the enemies were and I thought there would be adventures and dungeons in it and it really mesmerised me for a long time and I started to click and realise how fantastic it was that there wasn't enemies um, or the enemies weren't clear and it was up to you who you sided with um, and I suppose that's what you call a sandbox game now so for me Griffin Mountain was the initiator of, of RuneQuest really clicking with me and making me convert from Dungeons & Dragons to this bizarre world system. And how did RuneQuest come into your vision then? Was it just something that was a White Dwarf scenario or was it um, other friends? I think it had been mentioned in White Dwarf. Um, that might have initiated it, though I can't remember that. But I remember walking into a, my games shop and it being there, and that box set, that RQ2 box set mm. being there. and I plucked it off the shelf and I must have had money and bought it uh, so yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if White Dwarf seeded the idea but what I can remember is, is just buying it in the shop. And with that great UK artwork as well um, yeah whether that's just something that's you know in my in my youthful psyche now or not but I think I definitely prefer that artwork to the uh, to the other. So I think it's worth mentioning that you know, we all went to university, me and my friends, and we came back to role playing again in the 1990s. Um, and to, I know it's it's not on, on vogue, but we started again with RQ3. But what we were doing is we were taking RQ2 scenarios and converting them to RQ3, and we never actually played out of Glorantha. So we had a bit of a resurgence again, sort of much later on in our lives in our 20s. And and how about you, Mark? Uh, yeah, I. Similarly, started Dungeons and Dragons as a kid in high school, and uh, and I know we were playing RuneQuest um, in the later years of high school, and then kept playing it into university, and in my my early years in university, played a bit of RQ with Mob of now of Chaosium fame, and did a few drawings for uh, Tales of the Reaching Moon back when it was, you know, issue three, issue four. And then probably right around the time I um, qualified as a doctor, stopped playing all those games, stopped drawing, and didn't do it again until like the last couple of years of my life. So I've, I've had probably a, almost a 30-year hiatus from 
RPGs. And my recent interest was um, probably kicked off by uh, meeting up with Mob himself when I somehow figured out that he uh, lived, well, he lives in Melbourne, and I somehow figured out he lived right around the corner from where my office was. Um, <laughs> so I decided that was too much of a coincidence and we should catch up for a chat. And he told me the amazing news that he was now a partial owner of Chaosium and the rights to Glorantha, et cetera, et cetera, it was all, which was all complete news to me. I had skipped literally you know, nearly 30 years of, of the history of the game. I think that's a very common theme now. I'm wondering whether Mob and the other directors have created the equivalent of the Red Ferrari for the midlife crisis, which is for you to dive back into, <laughs> into Glorantha. Yeah, well, I, I I suspect that that is that is something for for people our age where we've probably got a bit more time on our hands and um, mm-hmm. and the, the reasons we loved it in the first place are still are still the reasons we love it now. On our scale, it strikes me as like the Hollywood reboots of a TV series that people loved when they were kids. It's just the same thing, only with less money. And uh, and Nick, what's your background with uh, role playing? I started playing D&D uh, 40 years ago in my last year of primary school. My, my school teacher got me into it by talking about what his Hobbit had been getting up to at the weekend. And I, of course, as a Hobbit fan, was intrigued. So I was about 10 then. Um, and I first played RuneQuest a couple of years later and really swapped over to that as, as I became a teenager. Uh, I'd heard of RuneQuest. I just did my research here. Uh, I first read about RuneQuest in detail in a magazine called Recreational Computing. Uh, volume seven, <laughs> number five. Um, it had an in-depth article looking at RuneQuest, and I read this, and I thought, gosh, that sounds interesting and more fun than D&D. I wonder what this game is. But much as with John, um, White Dwarf in the UK made people aware of RuneQuest because, of course, Games Workshop publishers of White Dwarf were publishing RuneQuest in the UK. Um, one of the weird mysteries of White Dwarf is it was always kind of a house magazine. It's just that the house was, we import all these games. Then Eventually, in the later 80s, it swapped to, we manufacture all these games and they're ours. Yeah, the three things that really won me over to RuneQuest from D&D, it was the uh, consistent game mechanics, the percentile skill system, and the lack of classes and levels. You could do anything. You you wouldn't be told, don't use a sword, because wizards don't use swords. There'd have to be something more to it like that, like, your god says wizards use swords, but maybe there's a god over there who says they can. Uh, On the morality side of things, I loved it that monsters had the same stats, skills and spells and cults as the players and they were people they had their own motivations they weren't just kind of easily killable goblinoid experience points um and they, they could they could rise and rank the same way you could. if you were a, a rune lord all anthony you'd be up against rune lord trolls and that's scary um and then the third thing and the most important one to me now but not then maybe is the setting it was the way greg's world of glorantha was interleaved with the rules as you read them so that you'd find places that were in William Church's beautiful maps, referenced in the Bestuary chapter or the Cults chapter. Um, that kind of integration of the system and setting, it was very new in role-playing games, and it was a real eye-opener to me, and I loved it. So that's when I fell in love with RuneQuest. And basically, I, I ditched D&D by the time I was 13 and played RuneQuest all through my teenage years and then stopped when I went to university. So did you miss out on the RQ6 uh, and those RuneQuest releases, or did you follow it all the way through? Oh, I followed it all the way through. I followed it when there was nothing to follow. Um, when I say I stopped playing when I went to university, at uni, um, I was reading the Avalon Hill boxes and making grand theories. 
And um, I was playing Call of Cthulhu. My friend Chris Gidlow ran a brilliant Victorian campaign. And I was playing a RuneQuest 3 game, but it was set in Middle-earth. That was run by Chris Seaman, who went to publish his own fanzines about role-playing in Middle-earth. Um, lovely chap. Really good game. Enjoyed that so much. Um, but I don't have any stories of Glorantha and Deringdu from University of Billy. I kind of tried to kick off one game. It didn't really take off, and then we were on its finals. So my renaissance began the summer I left. So no long hiatus there. I hadn't got myself any work lined up. I thought, why not write a letter to Chaos and say, hi guys, I love RuneQuest. I can see that there's a few bumps in the pipeline. This was around the time of the Dave Dubisky art. Is there anything I can do to help? And I got a lovely letter back. The, when I say letter, I'm talking about a piece of paper with airmail stamp on it that goes into the post system and arrives at the other end eventually. And I got a, a letter back from Greg Stafford, signed on Chaosium letterhead, saying, right now, if you want to contribute to Glorantha and RuneQuest, the best thing to do is to get in touch with an English man called David Hall, who's editing a magazine called Tales of the Reaching Moon. Nick, get in touch with David Hall. So I did. In the 1990s, those Tales of the Reaching Moons were just amazing to get. And I now realise that they're full of Mark's art. So our playgroup, when they came through, that was always very exciting to read. And we'd often use a lot of the work inside there to, uh, you know, initiate further play within the group. Yeah. Um, no, no, you see, I'd missed Tales. It started coming out in the late 80s and I had no idea about it. I must have not noticed it in our local games shop if it was in the local games shop. But when I got in touch with David, um, he did three things. He um, invited me to help out as a kind of proofreader and contributor for Tales, which I did then for the rest of the decade. And he invited me to join his local game. So we would get together, usually at Steve's house, sometimes at David's, and play the Grey Dog game, which was a RuneQuest campaign, which, despite David's protestations, it had been originally created by Jonathan Quaife using material he'd borrowed from Chaosium. David took it over to run it, and we gradually turned it into a sort of Asterix, the ball style mix of globetrotting adventure with back home at the clan intrigue. And it was lovely, glorious things. Played that for um, a lot in the early 90s, less in the later 90s, and then the group kind of split up and wandered its separate ways come the noughties. But that was my that was my RuneQuest prime time. And Nick, did you use any of the official campaigns as well, or did you? was it mainly just a homebrew-style campaign? In my teens, I'd run stuff out of Parvis and the Big Rubble. I'm not, not saying I ran it particularly well, but I ran it. And I played in some Griffin Mountain, which was, was a bit of a pain in the butt actually, because um, as I was playing in it, I didn't buy the book, and the book wasn't available to buy, but eventually I lucked into a second-hand copy. But for the uh, Grey Dog campaign, that was written, adventures were by David Hall. Sometimes we were playtesting things that ended up in the magazine, more often we weren't. And there was a lot of character beats and uh, ongoing clan politics, and he had one NPC in particular, Branduin Greatblade, who I think in the official timeline is now the uh, chieftain, or indeed the king of the tribe, um, whose job was to show the rest of the group what you ought to do. So we'd all go off and um, do a dungeon and come back with money, sort of crudely here, and uh, we'd be thinking about what we can, spells we can buy and what training we can buy and what armor we can buy, and Branduin instead would go and buy cows. And we'd be saying, Branduin, you idiot, why have you spent all your money on cows? And then we'd go back home to Grey Dog Village, and everyone would be saying, Wow, Branduin's got it made. That man's got so many cows. Whoa, he's awesome. I'm saying, shit, I've got this armor. I've got my skill training. I learned an extra point to a blade sharp. Nobody cares. They only care about the cows. It was a lovely, lovely moment. 
Uh, we got into a lot of scrapes while Brandon was trying to impress nearby eligible Colimar Earth Priestess as well. And this was like, yeah, I suppose technically we ought to be, but Brandon's doing it. And having an NPC do that drags you along because, of course, you all get into scrapes when he does. So it was a very nicely conceived campaign. I you know, loved playing it, still miss it. It, just two things happened to shut it down. One was we were putting so much work into our freeforms and other publications that scheduled let's have a game day turned into hang on, sorry, cancel the game, let's get most of us together to write the thing day. Mm. Shut it down. And the other was eventually people went off their separate ways. So David moved to Sydney, down, and Rick moved back to Ann Arbor. Colin and Phillips moved to New Zealand. I was still where I was, but nobody else was there. And this was before we had. <laughs> like Skypes and Zooms and the like, um, so virtual gaming wasn't an option. Then I had a fallow period for a few years while I got married, the two best kids in the world, and I started gaming again briefly with a short D&D campaign in about 2004 and a long-lived Dark Heresy campaign in 2008, and I got back into RuneQuest in 2018. Now, I'd been skipping them on these years, but the first release was terrible. And I supported, loved Mithras, and was looking forward to a RuneQuest 6 Mithras Adventures in Barantha, which ended up not happening, I think, because of the success of the RuneQuest Classic Kickstarter. But I was back in the RuneQuest Classics and what's now uh, RuneQuest role-playing Barantha all the way, delighted with it, started the campaign as soon as the physical book was available, and that's been great fun. You just touched on a point there that's quite interesting. So I'm assuming you've all got long-term partners or wives or whatever. Yep. How how do your partners view your role-playing and or writing for John Sand Compendium? So my wife is a very, very easygoing, gentle soul. So I get away with it. And back in the day, back in the 90s, when she was my girlfriend, she'd have to put up with, I don't know, upwards of 12 blokes coming around to our shared house <laughs> and and having two huge role-playing sessions a week. So it's just, it's always been integral with us and it's never really been a problem. Has she ever dipped her toes into it as well? No, she has no interest whatsoever, which is also quite good. Uh, so yeah. it's quite a good sort of foil, really. And I've got two boys and they both role play as well. Um, so that's always been, it's been lovely for me. So yeah, I've, I've got away with it. How old are the boys? The boys are now both, they're, they're twins. They're, they're 22 now. So they've, they've role played sort of from, from 10 plus onwards. So that, I've been very lucky, really. Um, I've got three boys. The youngest one's 10. Uh, so 10, 12, and 16. The 16 year old is never going to be into it. I desperately want to try <laughs> to get the, the younger two into yeah. it. You know, I'm battling Skyrim and Fortnite. Yeah, I've got a long suffering wife, 8, 10, and 13. And um, much time uh, doing the art, I suppose. Uh, I get in a little bit of trouble if I spend too much time on the weekend. It's. She, she sees little enough of me as it is just because of my busy job. So she sees a little bit less because I'm draw, sitting somewhere drawing. It's not that big a deal. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, I'm similarly trying to get my kids involved in this uh, sort of world and uh, spend most of my time playing what we call Kid RQ with an eight-year-old, <laughs> which, which involves a lot of maths sort of tutoring, you know, what – What's your power again? What's five times fifteen? <laughs> and uh, and a, uh, there's no character sheet, so a lot of the time it's just like, uh, what's your listen skill? And uh, and it seems that almost all skills uh, are around the ninety percent. 
Yeah, when you ask an eight-year-old, 90%, always 90%. Um, but it's just a way of telling stories with the kid and, uh, you know, using your imagination. And, yeah, so so Gloranth is such a rich background that you can just pull tiny chunks out of it and uh, and the kid thinks your imagination is, uh, you know, amazing um, because you've, you've suddenly invented uh, so, something like elves being plants that... Uh, yeah. Is, is taken for granted by all of us, but for an eight-year-old kid, that's just mind-blowing. Mark, can I ask you a question? Do you find the, the drawing and the painting that you do, do you find that very cathartic, or are there are certain things that you've had to do that you've, that's just pissed you off because you had to, you struggled to do it? Uh, yeah, a bit of both. So um, I, I've, I think I've mentioned to you, John, that the actual reason I got in touch with you is because, so I hadn't drawn for RQ until I've just started drawing with John. And uh, for the last probably 18 months, I'd been going to life drawing classes, which is, you know, a couple of hours on a Wednesday night sort of thing, not a big time investment, uh, which I'd really enjoyed. And then lockdown came to Melbourne and such things were very promptly banned. And so I spent a couple of months sort of wondering how I could fulfill my and came back. So yeah, look, I, I some things I've found really difficult. Like I'd never actually used colour really until I did that big double page spread for the tradition volume. Yeah. I'd only ever drawn with black and white pencils or pen and ink. Um so it's been some things have been a real massive learning curve for me, um, and they've been a a fair struggle. But largely, as I've said, you know, I'm doing this because I enjoy it. If I'm not enjoying it, I'm just not going to do it. You know, as John has worked out, he can sort of give me some instructions as to what he would like drawn, but then I'll just draw what I want to draw anyway. So it doesn't <laughs> ignore the instructions pretty yeah, much. Very true. Very true. Uh, so it's got to be fun. If it's not fun, then it's interesting. I actually found that with with them getting some of the artwork done for Legion, I would give them a this is description of the brew, this is the weapons they use, this is the armor, and without fail, every time it would come back with something different. But that something different would be, oh, that's actually really cool. And then I'd end up changing the character. So I'd imagine that would be something similar that you did within Tales of Militia. Um, yeah, uh, time and time again, Mark has not obeyed instructions and <laughs> gone and done something. <laughs> And then I thought, that's a really good idea. So I've gone back and then altered the text, which has been really lucky that we've gone back to remaster them because he's, he's added things that I wouldn't have thought of. So yes, yes, it's been really interesting. I mean, a great example of that is the uh, Traditions double-page Volkswagen Camper Rhino, which was not in the scenario, but now it's, no. uh, it's kind of an indelibly part of that encounter. It's just such a beautiful thing. And yeah. this, this mad bugger in Australia went off drew a Volkswagen camper rhino completely off script. We should have sacked it, Frank and John. But it's, it's yeah. glorious. It's really lovely seeing that. I, yeah, I, I have the same experience with artists all the time. They're just uh, very, very clever people. I like them. That's great. And um, so, Nick, do you have a long-suffering partner, wife as well? Uh, yep. I'm uh, married to Julie, have been for 24 years or so. Uh, we've got two kids. Sarah's just finished at university. Wilf's into his um, third year there. They've both gained Julie tried a few free forms in the in the 90s probably before we were married and decided that wasn't really her thing and the pen and paper sitting around rolling dice stuff has never been her thing she lets me do it it's take less of my time now than it did back before we got settled because i used to be jetting around all over the place to conventions and things that isn't happening now but uh yeah yeah i mean it's this is what i do with my time 
both my kids, I've played a few pen and paper sessions with them. They both were very into um, MMOs back in the day. In fact, my daughter got me into it back in the day, and then that grew into Star Wars The Old Republic, which is an excellent game. If anyone out there is looking for a guild to join, just let me know. But I think really the appeal of video game role-playing over the old school stuff without which it wouldn't have happened is it's one of those things that's like slightly changing the subject. I had a lot of um, paperback science fiction that I'd read as a teenager and a young adult which I thought was really great and I kept that on my shelves and I thought maybe my kids would be interested in this and they were like no I'd rather watch the TV version so it's like oh I see yes it's like the world has moved on and we've got different options and different media now and if you were getting into this kind of thing now you probably would do it through video games whether it's Baldur's Gate or Warcraft or Skyrim or whatever you're getting a lot out of it that way. There does seem to be a resurgence though especially with D&D into that sort of young millennial crowd it seems to have jumped a generation and had a resurgence now. Have any of you had experience or seen that? I, I, yeah, look, I, I think you're probably right. My gut feeling is that the kids who've grown up with a screen in front of them, you know, from the age of 10, 11, 12, are sick of it, you know, and, and it's, it's a novel thing to sit with actual mm. human beings around an actual table and interact with other, other persons from the Homo sapiens race. And have no guidelines at all. You know, it's it's a you know Skyrim is this is your task as an example. This is your task. You know, you can only see what the get what the developers put in there. But with role playing, it's total blue sky. Yeah, and you can't start writing things off as oh that's obviously a side quest. I'm not going to do that. No, the the interaction, the buzz you get around the table when somebody brings something completely out of left field and drops it there, and you all have to deal to it with it is magnificent. And there's nothing quite like that in a um, yeah. skirmish simulating MMO. Yeah, they're wonderful things. So in terms of Glorantha itself then, do you uh, each have a, a favourite region? Obviously, Sandheart is based on the east side of Prax. John, is that one of your favourite regions? Is that why you've placed it there? Yeah, I, I think I would say that 75% of what we've done has been in that area. I nearly started something in Maneria, but I realised that that would just take far too much time and um, we also did quite a lot of, of playing in Balazar, but I think we just, I just know that area so well that I just felt that that's where I wanted to go. Uh, and my, my favourites are actually the Praxians themselves, even though I've written about some county, I do really like the Praxian culture and Waha in particular, I think is a, is a great god. So yeah, I just, I enjoy all that. It's cowboys and Indians really. Mm. I, I agree. I, I think that Nick's referred to it a couple of times and maybe John as well as kind of and mob has as well. It's it's kind of like Mad Max. It's a bit uh, yep. it's a bit out there and 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 um, you know weird tribes and stuff like that. So I yep, really like yeah. Prax is my favourite part of it. And I'm not actually that massive a fan of the whole uh, satirite tribe internal politics type stuff. And I'm not a massive fan of the whole your character will end up influencing world events. I really like being one of the little guys. Which is what attracted me to, you know, John's writing, because straight away, as soon as I read it, I thought this is an awesome premise to be able to involve a disparate group of player characters and they are anchored in the world and they will be affected by the big events in the world, but they will not be the ones who end up as the big heroes kind of influencing the politics of the region. So you're more of an RQ2 starting at 30% to hit with your short sword than a, an RQG rune magic out of the gate type of guy. Uh, no, I really liked the idea of rune magic out of the gate. That was good. <laughs> but, but, but uh, and I don't know about the 30%. Like, I think that it was kind of more 
rather than just sort of raw stats, it was more just kind of where you fit it into the world. And I liked mm. I liked the characters where the world pushes them around rather than them pushing the world around. Very interesting to hear you say that because Mad Max had a big effect on me as well. I thought it was an amazing um, set of movies they were. Um, and, and I think even without thinking about it, I did write characters that get pushed around and I did, did write a setting where you didn't do anything world-changing. So very interesting to hear Mark say all that. I'll chime with what chime with his thoughts on that. Now, and Nick, I dread to ask which is your favourite region. I'm, I'm imagining it's going to be uh, somewhere up with the with the Elvis King. Not quite. No, I mean, I, I, lo- I love Prax, and I think the the Mad Max ambiance is is a great thing. The cowboys and Indians ambiance, the uh, Romans in uh, occupied Judea thing is great fun. <laughs> but to me, my favourite region is Dragon Pass in the Hero Wars. When I say that, I'm not talking about Sartorite clans stealing cows. I'm talking about the struggle between Prince Argrath's three kingdom of Sartar and the sophisticated, insidious, let's say, evil lunar empire creeping into the north. To me, the lunar versus all action in Prax and Harvest always felt like a sideshow. It's like setting your game in Casablanca, but missing out the action of the Second World War. And so although folk have filled in the rest of the world in loving detail, actually where I want to set my games is Dragon Pass. Um, I've got very fond memories of David's campaign from the 90s, which was in Sartar during the lunar occupation. I'm loving the RuneQuest I'm running nowadays, where, hey, Sartar's free, the lunar's gone, and you get to rumble around Dragon Pass, going to weird stuff, raiding ancient terrors, and meeting interesting people and killing them. It's just great fun. (laughs) Uh, To be clear, I love Prax, big fan of Prax, but if you put those two places side by side, I'd pick Dragon Pass over Prax any day of the week. And that's fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your intro to that is, is interesting to me because there's a, an assumption that because we write about the Lunars, we are pro-Lunar. Uh, we think the Lunars are fascinating villains. We want them to yeah. have good lines they can use. We want them to have absolutely weird, twisted, long-term, malevolent, evil plots they can be working on. We want to make them interesting antagonists in games. Now, if as part of doing that you say, hey, wow, we could run a team of Lunar Secret Agents, yeah, that's brilliant. That's an extra link to your game. It's a bit like saying, oh, now I can run an all-troll party using Troll Pack. Yeah, you can do that. It's probably not what you want to do. I think that you can run a pro-Lunar, yay, the Empire, we're only obeying orders campaign using our Lunar stuff, but you're meant to be using it to say, crikey, now I know what Lunars think. Now I know how they behave. Now I know what they're working on. Mm. And that, to me, is what you want in your games. So I wrote a little scenario called The Duel of Danger, which um, puts um, probably half a dozen player characters up against an entire lunar army of two and a half thousand soldiers led by the greatest general of the age. <clears throat> and the lunars in that, are, they're just great fun because they're characterful people. You go up against these sort of the, the bald Nazi boxer from Raiders of the Lost Ark and against the fop in Yanafali armor and against some monstrous demon that the Lunar College of Magic have assembled for some kind of bet and you get to bandy words with Fazo Widrid. It's, it's lovely. And to me, that's, that's why I write Lunas the way I do. It's to give you that sense of texture and depth that lets you use them as something more than just um, they're Romans, let's kill them. The Lunar Empire is a, an excellent enemy, uh, really, really uh, well put together. I'm a war gamer as well, so um, I remember reading something that Greg Stafford had read, written, and I think it was in RQ2, saying that the Lunar Empire was also based on Seleucid Persia, 
that really kicked me off because I've got a Seleucid army. I know quite a lot about the Seleucids. And yeah, it's it's an amazing enemy because it's flamboyant and pretty. And it's just a really interesting uh, sort of evil empire, as Nick says. So that's quite an interesting choice then to take it out of RQG, essentially. You know, it was Pavis and the big rubble, you know, with Pavis, Pavis, Pavi. Um, it was really great to have that automatic force that you were pushing against. Do you think that that was a specific choice to take it out of RQG? I can answer that with insider knowledge. It was absolutely deliberate. The authors of RQG felt that we'd been stuck in a rut, uh, resisting the lunar occupation in both Pavis, Prax and Sartar forever. And we knew that there was an event coming, coming soon, when RuneQuest first edition came out and said the dragon's about to rise meet the lunars and then you'll get the hero war and that had been coming soon for i don't know it's 35 years <laughs> and i think the logical decision to say we've got a new edition of this game it's the first chaosium edition for donkey's years we are going to take it to that point that we've always told you it was going to get to and the games you're playing are going to be set at the time of our board game uh, white bear and red moon dragon pass it's going to be a role-playing game set during the hero wars in dragon pass that's it go uh and to me it's liberating i'm actually writing what to me is quite a poignant piece now it'll eventually hit the johnstown compendium called Moonbroth oasis the ruins of lunar Prax. and one of my touchstones for this is the lunars are gone and they're not coming back and the stuff they've left behind at Moonbroth oasis is ruins refugee camps and a lot of standard army issue helmets up on spears hmm. and that's it and i'm getting the same vibe i'm, I'm a big star wars fan, not ashamed to say it and i'm getting the same vibe as i write that i got looking at things in the recent star wars movies particularly things like crashed star destroyers and uh, in mm. the, this tv series the mandalorian there's a beautiful establishing shot in Tatooine, where they go past stormtroop helmets up on spikes. And you're just thinking, this is it. You know, you've got to accept that time has moved on. The Empire's gone. I am not going to be writing anything that's about, here's how a lunar army comes to Pax and reconquers it. Here's a lunar agent with a cunning secret plan to reunite. It's like, no, accept it. Move on. That stuff, it's dead. It died at Second Moonbroth. It died at the fall of Parvis, the fall of the Grant, Grant Lands. There's stuff happening. There's really interesting stuff happening in Moonbroth. There will be interesting stuff happening in Corflu, but none of it is going to be what we're used to. It's not going to be armies and generals and governors moving around cracks in force and laying down the law. It's going to be far more strange and sinister and exploitable than that, and that's the way I love it. So that, that's... Um, it's quite off topic, but it's, it's the kind of thing, it's the mindset you can get into when you start thinking, oh yeah, the Lunars are now going to have to find another way of making this work, because military conquest and occupation didn't. There are still very clever Lunars, and they know the land, and they know the people, but you have to find a more devious way of working. Possibly part of what sparked me off thinking that way was the excellent game, 13th Age Chloranthium. I recommend everyone should buy and read that just to understand the full campaign setting which assumes that lunar hero questers and chaos are gradually unpicking your mythology by all your hero quests and all your myths and all your powers are screwing up. I think you should probably do something about it. Taking on from that then and, and you know, talking about the, the scope of writing, maybe you can speak a bit about what actually made you take the leap in writing for the John Sand Compendium. Blimey. Um... I'm a bit of a, we were talking about this um, a couple of days ago, weren't we, Neil? I'm a bit of a multitasker. I can't stop. Um, and I do like writing. 
uh, I have I did write a book a long time ago, and I wrote I actually wrote an adventure for RQ6, and I think with the advent of RQG, I just felt the desire to write some adventures and just see how how well they did. I can't really explain it any better than that. Um, I, I, I'm a prolific DM uh, or GM, I suppose I should say, always writing stuff, and I thought, well, I'll give it a go. I'll see what happens, and I did. And to be frank. Um, how far I've got, mainly because of the, the assistance of, of Nick and Mark, um, I'm really, really pleased with because I'm I'm not known in it at all in, in the RuneQuest circles. And yeah, those those two have made it an absolute joy. I might just quickly jump in there and just mention to the listeners that it is a bit of an auspicious occasion because even though the three of you have collaborated on the publications, this is the first time you're actually talking um, in person, well, in person online. I feel like it's probably normal for millennials, though. It's just it's just unusual for us yeah. old bastards. We just sound like a whole heap of granddads now. <laughs> Back in my day. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I think that, um, uh, you know, I've sort of said how I got back into doing the art for it. But, um, you know, I think that uh, it's kind of like amazing the standard of publications coming through the Johnstown Compendium. Like it's boggling and there's so many of them and there's so many talented people out there writing and drawing and laying out, Nick, you are talented. It makes it, yeah. diff- you know what I mean? It's just, it's, there's, there's so much untapped potential out there. It's just been uh, a, a genius move on someone's part to, to throw the gates open and say, guys, you know, get your works published. And it's so wonderful to be part of that. To me, it's um, like like so many things. It's all mobs. Um, Mob was visiting London last November, and he told me about the Johnstown Compendium as it was about to launch. And we chatted about the sort of thing that would be possible. Uh, he was very keen on reviving old material from Megacorp days, and I, I suppose that includes Mark. Um, but <laughs> the things the things that I, I made sure of, we, we we stressed in our discussions, was that there was no requirement to stick to canon, and there was no appro- approval process, and there was no editorial insight and to me that sounded like perfection so i reached out to the co-authors of the old rough guide to glamour over christmas and we got things rolling and had wonderful backing from our friends at chaosium because the guide to glamour it's about a third of it is old material and the rest is new and updated and revised and gorgeous but we had so much support from rick Mites, who had laid out the original version and um, from Mob, who said, oh, yeah, you can use this thing I wrote, you can use this thing I wrote, use that thing I wrote. And Jeff, who did us a whole cult write-up for the book. It was absolutely wonderful. But I, I agree, we, we were in a slightly privileged position there because um, Chaos Room guys wanted us to say, look, if you've got something old and it's been printed before, you can bring it out on the Johnstown Compendium if you've got the rights to it. It was a bit of a demo. I've learned so much. Well, to start with, I've got online friends that I've never met in person, which is quite interesting. Mm, um, yeah. um, I know what a glyph is now, uh, and Nick has taught me so much about the publication side of things. Um, yeah, it's been very interesting learning curve as well. Tales of the Sun County Militia, um, Volume 1, 2, and 3. Maybe you can give us a bit of a run-through for, for those people who haven't yet purchased it. Uh, maybe give us a bit of a background and a bit of information of what's actually in the publication. So volume one, uh, it includes uh, an 
an introduction to uh, Sandheart, which is an area of Sun County, and it introduces you to the main non-player characters and to the agriculture and, and, and the setup of, of the whole area. Um, and then it segues into what it's like to be a militiaman or one of the specials, the special constables, if you like, um, who are people who don't worship uh, Yelmalio but are taken on by the militia. And really, uh, as has been said by Nick and others, you end up being a, a police force in the area uh, and, it, and it sets you up to, uh, to undertake uh, the defence uh, and the detective work in and around Sandhart. Then it goes into a first adventure, which I, I won't say much about, but again, you'll, you'll get that feeling of being, being a police unit. Um, trying to stifle crime uh, and then uh, Nick has added a brilliant family history section onto the end of that which adds a, a lot more sort of a wealth and uh, sort of a deep character information that you can use. Why I should add actually is, is Darren along with myself also produced I think there's 12 player characters that you can take on. It was um, Darren Page Mitchell he did the extra four characters added to your original six there's 10 in the book they're great fun they've all now got more detailed family backstories. Darren was basically playtesting my family history and we loved the results. So he said, can we print those? And he said, yes. Yeah. So Corn Dolls Volume 2 is, uh, as the boys have intimated, a, a sort of police mystery type thing where there's a big uh, setup and uh, a timeline that's occurring independent of the PC's actions, which is you know, something I really like in an adventure, stuff's going to happen regardless of, of, of what your, your PCs are doing. I don't want to give any of it away uh, in case there are people out there who haven't played it and want to play it. But I think it's a, it's, it's a really richly detailed, um, richly detailed little scenario and a lot of scope in my mind for the old MGF, Maximum Game Fun, that Mob's always talking about. And uh, um, which I myself am a great proponent of. So um, we're in the middle of remastering it now, which basically when we say that, we're waiting for me to draw the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I'm a good halfway through, I figure. I reckon I've got about 30 picks in the can, so maybe about halfway. Um, and I don't know if I can say we're going to, uh, I won't give details, but, but we're going to expand it uh, beyond the... The, the single adventure as well, but you'll you might have to just wait and see. I don't know what I can say about that. Yeah, we just want to bring it up to the same size as the other books, and uh, strapping something else on the back seems the easiest way. Um, I will say the corn dolls to me, it's a bit like that wonderful scenario for Quest Three, Galmata's Vision, because it's a slice of life in Sun County, so it takes a really detailed look at everyday life, and then there's something else going on. But when you play through the scenario, you're learning what it's like to rock up to a farmer's stead and get introduced and find out what's going on, what's their life like, what's the rhythms of work. I really like that, the sort of everydayness you get in RuneQuest, and the Corn Dolls, to me, delivers that in spades, and then the weird stuff on top. Yeah, I agree, and the, and the richness of the kind of uh, NPC characters, you know, they're not, they're not all, um, they're not all sort of standard, uh, you know, I am the chieftain of the of the adjoining clan type stuff. There's all sorts of weird and wonderful people uh, to interact with. And is it a linear campaign connecting all three volumes or can you play each volume independently if you, if you wanted to? Well, you might have to ask Nick that question because he's got to talk about number three and that's, that's kind of <laughs> like... That, 
Number three is kind of part of the answer. Number three is called tradition. And um, I think it says on the, on the back of the book, there's a, a tradition that one day every year, the militia from Sandhar go to a cave and set a lot of fires, leave them burning for light, the night, and that's what you do. Um, and the idea, the rhythm of the scenario as written is the spine of a campaign. Is the first thing you do, you go to the cave, you light the fires, job done. And then next year you go back and you try and do it again, and maybe things are a bit difficult. Maybe people turn up, maybe something's happened, maybe something's changed. And this is the escalating pace of tradition. It's a recurring event, so it's like a character beat. This is what you're going to be doing in Dark Sea. I don't want to give away too much of it, but um, I suppose the idea is that if you're aware of what's in all of the Sandhart books, you can probably structure out something really neat that also brings in adventures out of um, Sun County and the RuneQuest 3 stuff set in Prax alongside the Sandhart stuff, alongside things you compose yourself or are inspired to do. And I know John's planning on at least a book four and probably more than that as well. What I really like about tradition is it's, it's, it's not just that it's um, my kind of Glorantha, it's uh, absolutely fizzing with uh, interesting, quirky Glorantha situations, but also there's so many different adventure beats it does. If you're running this game and you're the GM, you are going to have a whale of a time. So hero questing, dungeon crawling, police procedural martial arts siege situation with weaponized bison, ninja raids, Hot archival action and the hippie Volkswagen camper rider. Um, so, you know, that's my kind of grand thing. You do not get game uh, scenarios for other games that have the same fizz as tradition. Uh, as part of the centre of the adventure, there's a very nicely done hero quest John put together with um, kind of handouts and multiple choice questionnaires for every station. It's a lovely piece of work. I think people reading that will get an insight into other ways you can run hero quests, other situations you could use. Um, and yeah, I'm a huge fan of tradition. I haven't run it myself. I would, I would like to very much. Uh, really enjoy putting it together. And of course, this is the first time we were working with Mark and his art is, is beautiful and having the tools to put it together so to best advantage was lovely. And John, did you write in the VW or is that just a, a, a part of the illustration? That was that was that was Mark. Did you retrofit that into the campaign at all, or was it just visuals? I did. Better. So uh, I retrofitted it. So I I had a loose uh, uh, idea about who who these people would be, and then oh, well, I'm going to hand over to Mark at this point. See what Mark has to say on it. I think I actually drew the first little picture of um one one. I might have even drawn a couple of pictures of various kind of hippie type people. In black we, and white. We still got that one of um, a, a little bunch of them turning up on sable. The original, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That was that, that was that, the original. That, that's one. in the book. We're not going to bin your art, even if it no longer fits the text. Um, but we've got we've got that. We've got we've got the, we've got the other lovely hippie doing her harmony ritual. But it's no, that's splash pages. Yes, yes. Show that to your players, and uh, the ones who aren't going to be a good fit for Grantha will immediately leave the room, and then you've got a good group left. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I mean, that 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 particular little part of that whole um the the whole scenario really appealed to me because, you know, um John explicitly said, you know, says to the game master, you need your the player characters need to solve this without resorting to violence, um and uh, you know I I really liked it, that, that sort of thing. Uh, you you know, I guess it's maybe a little less common in in uh, some role-playing games to, to have to have to do that. 
also, and uh, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, when you're playing as the Sun County Militia, you're expecting to be um, jackbooted fascists. And we, John's <laughs> in this situation where a bunch of hippies rocks up. What are you going to do? And the role-playing opportunities you get from that are magnificent. So just on that then, John, I mean, obviously you mentioned that this isn't something you do as a, as a career as such. Did you develop a writing process? Did that come organically or have you got some kind of structure down now? Oh, I definitely write to structure. Um, so I'll definitely, I've got loads and loads of notebooks where I'll plan out in boxes what happens from one link to another. Um, and then I'll rough it out and then I'll often then go and play test it with my, my group. I've got two groups to play with. Um, and then I'll go back and hone it and write it. So I, I do do a lot of prep. I'm sure, um, you know, you, you other writers there know that there's a lot of prep and thought that goes into it all. Um, and I, I've, I've worked out all three scenarios in one go and then wrote them on a holiday to Australia two years ago when I had the time to write it. Um, fantastic holiday as well. I think you said you caught up with Bob when you were over here, didn't you, John? I did. I did, yeah. So I, I met him in, in Melbourne. And I could tell when he first met me, and I don't, I don't blame him. You think, who's this gonna, who's, what's this guy going to be like? You know, it could have been anybody. And he, he was... But everybody I've met at, ro at role-playing conferences have been so balanced and normal. I, don't, I wouldn't know what <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, we then we got talking over coffee and we talked for you know a good few hours and it was it was lovely. He's you know really nice and really supportive. Um, if I may go on, uh, Neil, I thought it might be worth just just um, saying how I first met Nick and then Mark, just from my perspective, because um, I'm going to be honest here. I'm, I'm associated with the truth rune. Um, so when I did volume one, it was Mob that actually did all the uh, the. Um, the publication on a drive through RPG, he'd actually sort of, you know, uploaded it. So when it came to the second one, I presumed he was going to do the same. So I sent him an email saying, here, oh, Mob, this is the next one for upload. Um, and I, I didn't get anything back because I think he was confused about what I meant to do. So I, I reached out to Nick and I hadn't spoke to Nick before. I said, Nick, why, why isn't this happening? And Nick pointed out that that was my job to do it the second time round. Um, so I felt very embarrassed by that, but then learned a lot. And Nick, Nick taught me a lot about the drive through RPG and how it worked and all that side of things. Um, and then with Mark, Mark sent me a message and said, hey, John, you know, um, I thought I might do a, a, a picture for you for, for one of your next publications. And again, I didn't know who Mark was. I didn't have a clue. I thought, is he going to be a bit odd? Is he one of these strange characters? <laughs> who knows? So I said to Nick that this guy called Mark Baldwin had, had reached out, and Nick said, "Oh, he's done all this stuff in Tales of the Reaching Moon." I yeah, thought, oh, I was God. blown away. <laughs> you, you've got the original Sun County artist coming to do art for um, Santa. Grab this guy, but so, no, Mark, so Mark, I don't, like I don't think life. many people. I, I, many on, people then. might not know the story, but when uh, Michael O'Brien submitted the manuscript that became Sun County to uh, Avalon Hill back in um, He'd seen the fiascos that the recent Avalon Hill boxes then had been with the, the um, Dave Tobiski art and so forth, and he didn't want to, them to do that to his book. So he did a kind of stab at laying it out as best he could on whatever kind of dot matrix printer he was using back in the day. But also he included art, and the art he included was by you. 
Yeah. So the initial mm. manuscript for Sun County included Mark Baldwin's artwork for the characters and the leaders and the places in Sun County. And Avalon Hill, being decided to redo these to their high, slightly bland standard. And they got Merlin Signer for the internals and Roger Rapp's cover, which is amazing. So good. Um, but the point is you, Mark, are the original artist for Sun County. And I know a lot of your stuff got printed subsequently in that Questlines book that had the secret history of Sun County in it. And it's lovely. Uh, just the idea that we had the original Sun County artist and yeah. he wanted to draw for Sandhart. It was like I told you Bite this guy's hand off. Get it. Yeah. yeah. I think so it's, a, yeah. That, it's a slight exaggeration what you said, Nick, but I'll 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 go with it. I think <laughs> I think Mob had maybe maybe sent off a couple of one or two drawings I'd done that um but yeah. Well I'm so pleased we've got you, uh Mark, and it was it was lovely for you to reach out. Yeah, I'm I'm also extremely pleased and uh, and you know, really so proud to be part of uh of the team. Um, yeah. And yeah. really, really feel like it's a, it's, I think, I think um, Andrew Logan Montgomery or someone said something along the lines of, you know, you know, it's amazing what, what sort of standard you can achieve with the, with a, with a team of people all playing to their strengths. Yeah, mm. it, it is a team effort, Neil, definitely. Um, we, we all kind of converse quite a lot. We have little periods of silence and we're all talking again. Um, and I don't feel like it's just mine anymore. I feel like it's, it's all of ours. And that's a good thing. So other than the issues that you had uploading the second volume, were there any other elements of the publication that you struggled with uh, that you needed to overcome, or was it 100% plain sailing? Well, as I explained at the beginning, I'm utterly shit at IT, so it's always been a bit of a struggle. Um, and then there's the, there's the element of, like, as you're well aware, Neil, is when you hit the you know, the upload button and you, you get you get it up for publication, you go for all sorts of fears that people aren't going to like it or it's not going to go down very well and, you know, the, the typical things. So it, yeah. none of it has been plain sailing, but it's all been great fun. And on that then, the response overall from the fans in terms of reviews and that people have reached out to you, it's been overwhelmingly positive, I'm assuming? Yes, it has. I, I, I'm not very good at... Uh, uh, Picking up myself on, on instances, so I think it's done. It's done really well. It's done far better than I ever thought it would. Um, of course, there are publications that have done better and you know are considered to be better, and that that's absolutely fine. I'm just very pleased that I've got a trilogy and it's beautiful, and I've got other people working on it. And uh, yeah, great. I'm very pleased. Very happy. And have you had feedback of people actually playing the game, or playing the campaign rather? Yes, yes, uh, I have, um, which has also been really nice. It's lovely when people play your your adventures. Uh, and yeah, and so I've had somebody come back and ask me some questions about the corn dolls. So I hopefully I help them about that. Yeah, no, all, all good stuff. Lovely stuff. Fantastic. I think it was I was talking with Drew Baker in the last episode that it would be fantastic if you could be a fly on the wall to actually see people playing playing the the supplements and playing the campaigns. Definitely, yeah. So I can see from the publication that you've had a fantastic forward written by Mob. Was there any other input from Chaosium staff themselves on the process? I mean, I know that it's very hands-off for the Johnstown Compendium, but when something sells as many copies as it does of yours, do they get involved or did you have any feedback from them? I've had 
uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, I, and that's fine. I'm not sort of, uh, I think that's the way it should be. They've just let me get on with it. And as long as I haven't broken any rules or committed any heinous crimes, it, uh, it's been silent, except for Mob, who's just been um, very supportive, you know, has been, has been involved in various elements of it. And I, I, just as a courtesy, I've, I've checked things with him just to make sure mm -hmm. that, um, you know, it doesn't uh, go against anything he, he, he would want to do. The only other input we had from the, the Chaosium team was was when Nick made us ask permission to put their likenesses in the family <laughs> history section because oh, yeah. someone, someone not naming names, had just went and drawn them anyway. <laughs> yeah, so. that, that, that was funny. To, to, to be clear, normally when you're writing for the Johnstown Compendium, you do not need to involve Chaosium. You don't run things by them for approval. You just write your thing and get it out there. But I was writing the Sun County background article, and I wanted to make sure that it didn't trample over anything that Mob or Jeff were doing. So in Mob's case, I just made sure he was on board with the idea and he loved some of the stuff I'd added, the kind of um, hippie Nirvana moment, the hits in the 1590s made in Blissful. With Jeff, it was more about making sure that my version of the sequence of events around Tarkalor and Monroe and the wars against the trolls in the troll woods and the movements, the exchanges of personnel and ideas between the and the Dragon Pass Sunday. I just wanted to make sure I had those bits right. And in fact, Jeff shared in the last few weeks a couple of lengthy posts about Elmal, Monroe, Sundome Temples and the like which are his written-up versions of those discussions. And so, yeah, it's all spot on. But the thing I want to be very clear about is you mustn't blame anyone else for the hippies. That's all on you. It's been something that's come up with the other conversations we've had around canon, that I know that one of the things is with the Johnson Tank opinion is there's no, you know, you don't have to get authorization and it doesn't have to be canon at all. But I think that most people writing want to at least base it within some kind of loose reference of current Glorantham canon. Was that something that you considered when you were doing your writing? How important was it? Yeah, definitely. I didn't want to write anything that really went against the grain. Um, so I, I included a lot of spirit cults that I'd seen in Tales of the Reaching Moon. And I did include uh, a female hero of Yelmeli that you can worship. But apart from that, I didn't want to stray far from doing something completely odd. I think I trusted myself to know where I could draw the line. I might have got that wrong, of course. And I mean, it's such a there's such a wealth of information out there that it would seem a bit churlish to kind of go against the obvious things. And it's such yeah. a, a massive area anyway that you can place campaigns in particular regions that haven't had a lot of information written about them and kind of go crazy with it. Exactly. One of the things I'd, I'd like to briefly talk about on this is that for Glamour, it was really important for me, and we got permission to do it, that we included the complete descriptions of the city of Glamour and the crater and the, the Sultanate where it is out of the guide to Glorantha. We cut and pasted those paragraphs into our book. It's in the middle section, the Sultanate of the Silver Shadow. It's lovely. But it was there deliberately to let us showcase how well our version of the city dovetails with canon, because we absolutely started with what was known about Glamour, what was written about Glamour, what was already out there when we did our version. That said, Canon. Canonically, Moonson Argentius probably isn't Elvis. Uh, canonically, the goddess Glamour actually is Debbie Harry. Um, but you're never going to find out about that for the Chaosium. Canonically, there probably aren't Spice Girl jokes associated with the seven Farkalists for the guide. Canonically, um, there would be fewer Blondie lyrics 
in the Cult of Glamour write-up, and I know that because I had. Um, so yeah, what, what, what's canon and what um, matters? It's it's always this balancing act with Glorantha because Glorantha, as played, has the fun stuff, the quirky stuff that happened at the table, or the half troll resurrecting wheels or whatever it may be, the, the whole Temple of the Wooden Sword stuff, which is all ambient. It happens at the table. It happens in an atmosphere of beery dice roll. Whereas the actual canon, the articles, the source books and things tend to be on a slightly different pitch, except that you go to Parvis, you go to Bob's Bison Burgers in Parvis. And if you're going to get upset with me for an anachronistic red square in Glamour, why don't we also get upset with Parvis for anachronisms and Boldhome for anachronisms? Hey, the Bostrop Mill down the road from Grey Dog Lands for it's like RuneQuest has never been a rigorous archaeological Bronze Age simulation. I add footnotes mm. to my books nowadays, poking fun at people who want to play in rigorous archaeological Bronze Age simulations. We've got cartoon ducks all over the place. We've got sentient taper men who may or may not be wiggling their thumbs at you. Just the idea that this should all be very serious and very grim, and it should all be about, I don't know, heroism or inheritances or clan histories or sexual politics or whatever bollocks to that this is a place for cartoonish fun so yeah i i, I, I don't get particularly puritanical about about canon and you know if somebody pops up on a mailing list and says well in my game runeson argentius is more like xerxes it's like that's brilliant your game's original your grandpa will does and may vary yeah. i love that however i don't know any good xerxes so i wouldn't use it myself I mean, all, all of the publications have had those kind of really broad winks to the reader that even if they don't actually come into into gameplay, you know, it's fun for the GM to read that and have a bit of a snigger to themselves. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, fun in that way has always been a big part of or always was a big part of every RuneQuest game I ever played in. And so for me, having clearly non-canonical things included in the writing and the and the art is important to remind people that you're there to have fun that's why we play yeah mm. but yeah, here's, yeah. here's the thing we're saying non-canonical but if you talked to greg stafford he would tell you absolutely three bean circus counter in nomad gods was inspired by his hippie friends who used to turn up and they brought food and the food was always the same three bean salad those are the three bean circus. So by us taking that and saying, okay, we're going to put hippies into tradition, they will be taking the role of the three bean circus. That's who they are. They'll be turning up in a Volkswagen camper rider. Okay, maybe Greg never went quite that far, but you can tell we're in the same spectrum. And it's known that the inspirations from 70s Californian count culture are a fundamental part of the game, that mm. you can't pretend it's grimly serious Bronze Age warfare without saying, uh, and of course, one of the monsters is a gigantic sentient pumpkin head. <laughs> it's like, yeah. at some point, you're going to have to relax and accept it. And I, I just like pushing people towards that point because it's really fun when they get it. Just to say that the, the games that I run, they're full of hilarity. It's not like we sit here quietly and doggedly beavering away. They're just, you know, as, as it should be, there's a lot of laughter, there's a lot of fun, sometimes a bit of intense fear as well if somebody's going to get close to dying, but most of it is people laughing. Mm. Mm. Well, interestingly, one of the podcasters I listen to, which um, we'll give a shout out, which is the um, Old Men Play RuneQuest. I'm not sure if any of you have listened to that, but that is hilarious. And I think that that closely mirrors some of the games that we play. Yeah, and as it should be. And if it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. That's right. One of the, the last few questions is, if you had unlimited time and budget, which I know that um, very few of us actually do, what project would you love to undertake? Lordy, Lord. Unlimited time, unlimited budget. 
I think I would. I'd, I'd take a big part of the world like Maneria and I'd, I'd write it up in, in huge depth and detail. But that's never going to happen because I don't have unlimited either of those things you've mentioned. <laughs> uh, I would say if I had unlimited time, I would keep doing a lot of what I'm doing and also maybe do something along the lines of Humans of New York, where you just take snapshots of individual low-level characters and how they fit into the world of Glorantha and stuff like that. <laughs> that's the next project then. Yeah. Yeah, that no, that was strictly hypothetical if, he said, if there was unlimited time and unlimited budget. That's why I feel I could mention it and not feel any pressure to actually achieve anything of the like. I should say, Neil, as we, when we're waiting for Nick, we kind of, well, I kind of prompted Mark and said, hey, Mark, do, do you fancy arting up one and two? Because he did three first. And he went, no, I, I don't think I've got the time for that. I, I, I don't know. And here we are a few months later on and he's practically done it. So I'm, I'm very yeah. impressed with his... It's a speed. Begging to draw up every peasant and militiaman in yeah. the rest of the county as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Nick? Oh, for me, I, I probably just, with an unlimited time and budget, I'd be doing what I'm doing already, only a lot quicker and much, much prettier. I've got to say, the great joy for me of the Johnstown Compendium is working with the artists. Um, it's been an absolute delight. All this summer, I've had new artwork coming in every few days or weeks from Mark, from um, Dario Corallo, Catherine Dirim. Mike O'Connor, Simon Bray, Antonio Doncheva. Every time, it's wonderful. It's brilliant to see the stuff. There's some creative geniuses out there. And the Johnstown Compendium, the initial publication, my first one had clip art. My second one had art. And my future ones are going to have lots of art because mm. it's just beautiful. It brings these things to life. And we are totally swallowing the Kool-Aid. For my own books, it's going to be you know like as much Full, full color, beautiful art, integrated with the text, working with artists to get little glyphs, graphics and fillers and frames and things, as well as the art itself. Just love it. Um, so yeah, the unlimited budget would be spent on the artists and they'd all have unlimited budgets and would be able to give up being artists. I'd have to agree with that. It's very, very addictive. Once you start getting good art coming in, I know that I'm having to stop myself from getting my artists to keep drawing the portraits for Legion, for the brew in there. <laughs> Every time it comes back, I'm like, oh, it would be excellent to see XYZ brew. But I think you're also right that it definitely adds to the publications. So the, my next one that I'm in the process of developing now has got a $1,500 art budget on it, purely because because I want to see it, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. great. To have yeah. Yeah. Mind, but, you know, I'd, I'd love to actually see it in art. Mm. Yeah, totally understand that. I couldn't do anything else now without good art and good layout. I just, just couldn't. Yeah. So on that then, what would you say was your favorite Johnstown Compendium project that you weren't involved with, that you would have liked to have been? You asked this, I, I remember you bringing this question up. And I found that really, really difficult to answer. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's so much good stuff out there, and I, I don't really I don't want to name one over another, but if you're going to force yeah. me to choose, right, totally force me to choose, I'm going to say that the, the, the idea that I saw that I really liked, that I wish I'd done, was Drew's Rubble re Redux. And I thought, God, I could have done that. I would have enjoyed doing that. But it, it's really difficult one to go for, that is. Definitely a tricky one to answer. And, you know, certainly we, we'd like to share the love within the JC community for sure. Yeah, I would say very tricky to answer because Nick's on the line and he's listening. So I have to say rough, rough glamour, obviously. But my number two after that um, was, 
would, would be actually Valley of Plenty, which is the Hero Quest rules yeah. um, mm-hmm. supplement, which I bought only to see the art. <laughs> Because okay. I've not not played Quest Worlds or Hero Quest ever, and I and I re- I read it, so I, I picked it up, I leafed through it, I looked at the art. This art looks interesting. I'm going to read this, and I read it. I thought this is actually a fantastic, fantastically well written supplement, and I'm looking forward to the next ones from those guys. And Nick, well, obviously the polite answer would be to say Legion, but I'm not going to be polite. Um, I think it's for me, it's six seasons in Sartar by the other two. Andrew Logan Montgomery. I think it's a wonderful book. It's a self-contained RuneQuest starter campaign. It's got loads of insights into all anti-culture, initiation, hero questing. It's got some very clever, playful metafictions that once you once you get them, you can use them to enjoy Glorantha much better. So that instead of saying, I'm playing a game in Glorantha, say, I'm playing a game based on a sort of, I don't know, David Lynch version of Glorantha. I'm playing a game based on an epic version of Glorantha. I'm playing a game based on a TV telenovela set in Glorantha. And once you do that, your gaming's going to get better. It's kind of what I was alluding to when I said, I keep saying that Sandheart is police procedural because you, you know the rhythms and the beats of that nature, that type of entertainment. And if you get your head into that place and you're running a Glorantha RuneQuest game, it's going to be better than just running Glorantha RuneQuest. So yeah, if you wanted to introduce a new group to the game RuneQuest and the world of Glorantha, I can't think of a better way of doing it than Six Seasons in Sartar. It's this lovely coming-of-age campaign. It's beautifully produced. It's available in print. And I had no involvement with it at all, other than helping to keep Drew sane while he was going through the rigours of pre-print and had no idea what he was getting into. So every few evenings, he'd send me a, 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 a cri de coeur or a long, expletive-ridden post about how much he hated people asking for print on demand. And I would soothe him and tell him to have another cocktail. But I never laid <laughs> I'm sure that you really had to twist his arm on that last point. Um, well, all four of those publications, um, I totally agree that they're, they're fantastic, with the exception of Legion, of course. <laughs> so um, what other projects then do you have in the pipeline that we can look forward to coming to the Johnstown Compendium? Well, if I can carve out the time, uh, I'm going to put together a, a, another trilogy, uh, which, will, which will be leading on uh from the from the sand hot side of things but i need another trip to australia to do that i'm hoping to get one in next year i don't want to say any more than that really fantastic sounds good i am st- strictly not even thinking about any other projects because i need to get the art done for the one i'm working on now here here i can answer on kind of four different fronts and this is leaving aside Santa. Santa, it's not important. We did that one. So um, <laughs> I'm writing a, a kind of mini campaign or extended scenario for RuneQuest. It's called Black Spear. I'm afraid it's another tedious epic of the early hero wars, a bit like Dangerfall. Uh, it's being illustrated by Mike O'Connor, who's this wonderful cartoonist based in Seattle. You might remember his work from Enclosure magazine, but if you don't, you're in for a shock. Uh, unfortunately, lockdown means I can't playtest it with my RuneQuest group because I'm so old school. I like to be sitting around the table with people drinking beer and watching their faces while I game. But I've written way past halfway of it and I just need to stick the landing now. There's, there's three finishing acts and at the end of it, you get to find out what our grass is. So yay me, Black Spear. We're working on the next Lunar book, the sequel to A Rough Guide to Glamour. That's going to be a compendium of uh, secrets and heresies and apocrypha of the Lunar Way. It's been lavishly illustrated by Katrin Dirin, and for arcane reasons, it's tied to a particular moment in Chaosium's production schedule, which means I can entirely sincerely say it's probably coming out next year. Third thing, yeah, I'll give you a scoop. 
We've just about polished the Freeform Master Pack for Reaching Moon Megacorp's Life of Moon Sun. That's the 50-player live-action role-playing game that the Rough Guide to Glamour was written to support. We've put the whole thing into one book. It's coming up towards 300 pages at the moment, lavishly wow. illustrated throughout by Dario Corallo. I'm now, the thankless task at the moment is laying out the rulesy bits where each player got a, a few different rules papers for the things they were involved in and finding the right sequence to put those so you don't just read the thing and say, this makes no sense, I can't understand it, this book's crap, and give it a one-star rating. I don't want to get another one-star rating. Anyway. So as well as um, Life of Moonsun, I'll be doing layouts for anything my friends Chris Gidlow and Mike Hagen come up with until they find somebody who's better at it. And then in the long run, I've got backburner stuff like Moonbrook Oasis, uh, Glaranthan Voices, uh, my old medieval Malchione writings, and maybe I've got a few dream art-led but um, those are still in the, the concept stages. And you mentioned that you had a family and a job and you were doing all this? Yeah, yeah, family's grown up. Jobs, uh, no commuting involved at the moment, saves me a couple of hours a day. And I, I love doing this stuff. I've been doing it for 30 years. I think that the four of us all share uh, an ability to be very prolific. I can tell that, understand that. That's, some people are doers, and I think we're doers. And mm. yeah, that, that's what happens, isn't it? The one thing to add is that I love writing new stuff. RuneQuest Glorantha has inspired me to write new stuff, but I also like getting my old stuff out into print. And I've got huge amounts of stuff written about medieval Malkinism that's never been printed. Huge amounts of stuff. Life of Moonsun was all written, done, and dusted in 1997. That's never been printed properly before. So some of this is compilation. It's just taking things positive. The Glorantha Voices, that used to be a free handout from Chaosium. We're just looking into, well, if we re-illustrate this one, would you mind that we Blatted it out again, and then gone home for that. But it's it's all you know. When, when a project's art led, you wait for the art to be in, and you encourage the artist, and you poke the artist, and you say really flattering things to the artist. You have to get very good at doing that. You have to sound sincere when you're talking, because otherwise they they realise and then they just go. But it's it's one of the nice things is that you can say, well, this is an art led project, so I'll hand it over to the artist and I'll wait and see what comes. As it comes, I'll say, this is brilliant, give me more. This is brilliant, give me more. And then eventually you've got your book. Um, whereas the writing-led ones are much more pain because you have to edit your own work decades ago and you think, what was I thinking? Who is this? <laughs> Why did I think that was funny? So it goes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then on to our final question, which is, and I thank you all for joining me today. It's been really great, fantastic, and enlightening. So which runes or deity would you commit yourself to today? Well, I think it's going to have to be Waha and the truth rune for me. Oh, that's an Im impossible question. I, I don't even know. Shalana Arroy and, and Harmony just want everything oh, to be nice. You little sweet girl. <laughs> Everyone to be happy. And that's because you've been living in Melbourne. I think That's because we've just got out of six. Well, we're just about to get out of six months of the world's strictest lockdown, as our, as our newspapers like to tell us. The world's strictest lockdown. <laughs> we're about to come out of it. For me, I think it would be the Seven Mothers. One of the things, the state of Glorantham discourse, how few people have realised that the fundamental ethos of the Seven Mothers cult is saying, hang on, what we need to do is form a conspiracy with weird, sinister, outlandish powers in order to tear it down and replace it with something better. This is, if it had been deliberately that way, and I'm sure it wasn't, but I am doing my best to uh, exacerbate the idea that the Seven Mothers cult is going to be the downfall of the Lunar Empire as it should be. So, yeah, for me, seven months. Lovely. 
That's excellent. Will you join Andrew Logan Montgomery in the Lunar Pantheon as well? So that's that's two score for the Lunar. Well, thanks again for uh, all three of you for joining me, and I'm glad that you managed to have the chance to have a chat with each other, and we'll look forward to those projects coming up in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Black Alex. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love it if you were able to leave a review or rating on iTunes or your podcast software of choice. Or if you really liked it, you can support us via Patreon. You can contact us with questions and interview requests via our Facebook page, facebook.com slash groups slash The Runequest Project, or email us at theroomquestproject at gmail.com.